How good is your memory? Some of you have a great memory, and others of you are like me and not so much. And uh, I have trouble remembering what happened yesterday. And so for, uh, from time to time, I, I forget things. And on two separate occasions, I've forgotten my wallet and everything in it. And so that was not fun. I've even committed the cardinal sin of forgetting my wedding anniversary. And that happened just two years ago. My dear bride still loves me and puts up with a lot when it comes to my memory. Thank you, my love, for being patient with me. In contrast to my horrendous memory, Akira Haraguchi, at age 69, recited 100,000 digits of the number pi from memory at a public event near Tokyo, and it took him nearly 16 hours and 30 minutes. After he did this, in a series of questions from The Guardian, uh, a journalist asked him, he said, Mr. Haraguchi, in what way does Pi give you answers to the spiritual questions you were asking yourself? To which he responds, and I quote, all things in this world, including ourselves, are an aggregate sum of atoms, which are made up of rotating electrons. The ultimate history of mankind is moving towards a happy ending where people of all races on earth, the galaxy and the universe all rotate. And in other words, this rotation is absolute truth. So as long as I'm thinking about pi, a number, I think I can live according to the truth, end quote. And it's that last part. So long as I'm thinking about pi, I think I can live according to the truth. Folks, for decades, this man spent hours upon hours, day in and day out, <laughs> reciting a number, 3.14159265359. I won't go on. I only have the first 10 digits here. <laughs> Thinking that it would save him. What? How could reciting a number, 3.14159265359, save anyone? I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm baffled by this. But this is the world that we live in, right? How gracious is it that God has given us his absolute truth? We don't have to wonder or guess or think that a number will do something for us. We have it right here on the pages of Scripture. God's word has a different message. And God, through the Apostle Peter, is telling us that something is worth remembering. Something that is worth reciting for hours a day. And what is life's most important reminder? Our text is a review text today, and the opening statement clues us into that. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And I know it's been a little bit since I've preached in 2 Peter, so stick with me as we review Peter's opening chapter to his second letter, and we'll get to these qualities that he's referring to in just a moment. And Peter's letter is to the church that's scattered beyond Jerusalem. You know, this is post-persecution in Jerusalem, and Peter's writing to the Christians who are questioning the faith because of pressure, of the culture, of the teachings of that time, and philosophies that are surrounding them. Pressure, just like 
the ones that Christians are facing today. So what does Peter do to help the church? He reminds them of the apostolic faith that they have received. As a part of our review, we'll answer two questions. What is this faith, and what does this faith do? Look with me at verse 1 of 2 Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained an equal faith, an equal standing of ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right away, Peter mentions something important. The faith that we received is apostolic, meaning that it's of the origin of the apostles. It's not something we've made up. And if we take a look look at verse 2 and 3, it's clear that apostolic faith is based on the knowledge of Christ. And this becomes a key theme in Peter's letter, as we'll read throughout this letter. The knowledge of the truth will be the antidote to many issues. And for us now, this is where Peter starts everything off. Our first review point, we have been given apostolic faith. We've been given apostolic faith. The faith that we have been given is apostolic faith. But what does that faith do? What does it produce? Let's look at verse 3 for a moment and consider what it means when Peter says, His divine nature has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Because we've been given faith by God, the faith that he gives us is all that we need in this life for godliness and for righteousness and things of that matter. Continuing in verse 4, by which he has granted to us very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. When we become united to Christ through the promises of God, we're participating in that divine nature. Then skip down with me to verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can rest assured that our eternal state will be in the presence of the King. And Peter wants us to remember that our faith does these three things. Our faith grants to us all that we need. Our faith makes us partakers of the divine nature. And our faith richly provides an entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, because we belong to Christ, Peter is also reminding you and me of the apostolic faith that you already have. Peter reminds you through this section that this apostolic faith is active. It produces something. It does something in you. You have a faith that grants to you all that you need pertaining to life and godliness. You have a faith that has made you become a partaker of the divine nature. And you have the faith that has richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. What else do we need? These benefits given by the Holy Spirit are ours right away. And as soon as you place your faith and hope in Christ, these become yours. 
God did not withhold anything from Christ, and neither does he withhold anything from us when we are in Christ. And this leads us to our second review point. Our apostolic faith is fruit-producing faith. Our apostolic faith is fruit-producing faith. In the start of our section, Peter refers to uh, what he wants to remind the church as these qualities. And if we go back to the previous section, these qualities show up in verses 5 through 7 right in the middle of his gospel introduction. And these qualities are Peter's summary of the fruit of the Spirit. And each quality could be a sermon of its own. We don't have time for that. But what we do have time for is to discover where uh, these come from, where these qualities come from. What's what's the foundation? Look with me at verse 3. And as we can see, they stem from having been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. And in particular, we can also see from verse 3 that it's through the knowledge of him. Peter uses verse 3 and verse 11 as bookends to his thought. Now, can a story start without an introduction? Without the plot and the setup and the characters? Of course not. Can a story be resolved without an ending? Tie off all the loose ends of the plot line? Deal with the resolution between the characters? Of course not. And in the same way, in this text, Peter doesn't want to do that. He wants us to have the gratitude fruits of the gospel with a clear understanding of the gospel, both in the beginning and at the end. Sandwiched right in the middle of that beginning and end are these gospel-producing fruits. He shows us that we cannot have that middle portion, that fruit portion, without the gospel What if Peter wrote something like this? Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and so on and so on. Now where is the comfort in that? There was no gospel there. It's up to you to make your your faith produce these things. That's not what God says. God tells us that through Peter... Our apostolic faith is fruit-producing faith because God is the one who produces the fruit within us. Knowing the gospel is needed in order to be given faith. We cannot have faith without the knowledge of who God is. And the Heidelberg Catechism does a good job of explaining what true faith is. In question 21, the Heidelberg Catechism reads, True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. In this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. You see, Faith starts with a sure knowledge of what the gospel is, of who Jesus is and what he did for his chosen people. Are you growing in the knowledge of him? Are you listening intently to the preached word? Are you cherishing the sacraments? Are you trusting him to feed your soul as he does your body every day? Once we have the knowledge and have been given the faith, that Peter's describing, Peter's exhortations can now begin. And our first point from today's section is, listen up. 
always be reminded of these qualities. And you might be asking, why is Peter so hung up on these qualities? He says it over and over and over in this text. And the answer to that, it goes back to our first question. What does our faith do? Do you remember? Or looking back on the outline, if you're thinking that our faith grants or makes or provides, then you're right. Our faith grants us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Our faith makes us partakers of his divine nature. And our faith richly provides to us an entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. The faith that you have been given, dear Christian, is granting faith. It's making faith. It's providing faith. It does these things. Peter writes in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. Then in verse 3, he mentions again, His divine nature has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And this is the part of the faith that we need to know. We must know God's eternal plan of redemption. Fulfilled in the Messiah, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We cannot have true and saving faith if we don't know the truth of the Savior. Peter mentions that your faith is of equal standing with his. Now take a step back. That can sound like a lot. But what he's stating here is that the faith that you have is believing the same body of doctrine that the apostles have believed. And what becomes a great resource to us is a summary of what they believed in the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a summary of Scripture, and pretty much each line is uh, tied right to Scripture. And what better place to memorize what we believe than in the Apostles' Creed? Has anyone ever asked you what you believe? What did you say? Were there parts that you left out? Did you feel uncertain that maybe you didn't cover everything? How might you redo it if you had the chance? Let me suggest to you that the Apostles' Creed as your talking points. Because the Apostles' Creed is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can rest assured that the Apostles' Creed contains sufficient information to explain the gospel to someone. For a few reasons. One, it's true. It's based on scripture. Two, it's complete. It doesn't omit any facts about Christ's life. And three, it's short. It's memorizable. It's easily recalled. And the second part of true faith, after that sure knowledge, is a heartfelt trust. The Heidelberg reads, at the same time, it, it is a firm confidence. If we have placed our faith in something that we didn't know, it would be like me promising you that the next car that you buy is going to last one million miles. How can we have faith in something like that? I'm not the automaker who made that car. I, I'm not even a mechanic. And the gospel is similar. We must know God and what he's done in order to understand him. But in order to have true faith, we must also place our trust in him. Christ, the only begotten son of God, took upon himself true human nature. He suffered in body and soul while on the earth, but especially at the end, where he bore the full wrath of God for your sins and mine. But God raised him up on the third day, and he seated him at the right hand of God the Father, where he is now, interceding for you and for me. 
He also has given you his Holy Spirit as a confirmed promised pledge to the inheritance you will once receive when you die. And one day soon we'll be raised up with him to rule and reign with him over all creatures, experiencing eternal pleasures at God's right hand. What sounds better than that? Since he has truly ransomed us from our sin by taking it on for us, he has given us his righteousness from his perfect obedience. He is the only thing that is worth our trust. Christ is worth all glory and all majesty and all honor from now on and forevermore. Amen? A question for you kids. Kids, raise your hand if you've been to a funeral before. Right? Funerals happen because our bodies wear out. Sometimes our bodies wear out because of old age, sometimes from disease, and sometimes people die more tragically. Our time on earth is limited, as we are right now. And my second point is this. So let's wake up. Be roused. Wake up. Be roused, because our time is short. The Lord made it clear to Peter that he didn't have much longer. Maybe it was in the senior years of his life. But what does someone like Peter in the, in the last years have to say at the end? What is someone's final thing to say? He says, to be stirred up by way of reminder. Now, perhaps those of you that have been to a funeral before, maybe you've been around that loved one before they died. And are their last words ever meaningless things? Did they talk about the weather? No, oftentimes they're trying to communicate one last word of wisdom or encouragement. Or in part, uh, you know, a thing that has been most meaningful to them in life. Or maybe even one wish. Sometimes folks even take their last breath to seek forgiveness from someone. But we do not experience someone wasting their last breaths. And think of Peter's last letter. These are his last words. And what will the apostle Peter say? I mean, this is the guy who is always the outspoken one among the apostles. What does he count as the most significant reminder and noteworthy item? I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Be stirred up. Be roused. Wake up. Since our faith is fruit-producing faith, we ought to know what to look for right? Peter is telling us to look for virtue, look for knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. But folks, we have to be patient. Growth is slow, but your faith will produce this in you. God wants you to be on the lookout for this, not only in your own life, but in the lives of those around you. And the reason Peter is stressing this in his introduction is because it is crucial to recognize God's work in your life. Our third point, buckle up. Peter says, remember or recall these important things. Somehow God made it clear to Peter that he doesn't have long to live. And this is Peter's last chance to just lay it all down on the line. And at the end of Peter's introduction to his first letter, I'm sorry, his last letter. What does he tell the church? Let's look at verse 15. And I will make every effort 
so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He tells the church to recall or to remember. And this is not some new and profound divine revelation that he received that might be something we expect from the apostle Peter. But what is profound is the object of our memory. Peter is using his last letter to remind us of the gospel truth. And I'm convinced, as Peter was then, that God wants us not only to be reminded of the fruit of the Spirit that comes with our faith, but he wants us to be reminded of the one who causes the fruit of our faith. More important of the fruit is the one who produces it in us. God is the one who causes this fruit in us. The Apostle Peter wants us to be reminded that we have been given faith in the Messiah of the Old Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He wants us to remember the fruit of our faith, that our fruit grants us all things and makes us partakers in the divine nature and provides to us an entrance in the Christ's eternal kingdom. But most importantly, he wants us to remember the object of our faith, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ, the only begotten Son of God, took upon himself a true human nature. He suffered in body and soul while here on earth, but especially at the end of his life where he bore the full wrath of God for all of your sin and mine. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him up on the third day and seated him at the right hand where he is now, interceding, praying, caring for you and for me. And he also has given you the Holy Spirit as a pledge to the inheritance that you will once have when you die. And one day soon, we'll be raised up with him to rule and to reign with him over all creatures, experiencing eternal pleasures at God's right hand. This is the reminder that Peter wants us to remember. He wants us to remember Christ. He wants us to remember Christ's gospel. Now, dear brothers and sisters, are you believing what God is saying in his word today? God is calling you to submit yourself to his truth. And will you trust him with it? Life's most important thing to remember is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have apostolic, fruit-producing faith in Christ of the good news. And now we have the opportunity to show one another our fruit that God is bearing in us. Since Peter is pouring out his heart for the gospel, one way that we can encourage one another is to be at church where the gospel is preached and explained. Romans 10, 14 and 17 say, How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Then verse 17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God promises, get this, he promises to build your faith through the Christ-centered, gospel-oriented, public proclamation of the gospel. 
of the preaching ministry of his church. And since you are a Christian, God will continue to grow you in a desire to be here, to listen and to hear God's word. Perhaps you're feeling stuck in your faith. Somehow you feel like you've plateaued. Things just, growth is slow and it's just not happening. There can be other contributions to feeling this way, but let's get one thing straight. There is one way that your faith can grow that is promised here. And if you're not regularly and consistently sitting under Christ-centered, law and gospel, public preaching, your faith will be stuck. Your faith will plateau because God promises to use the public preaching of the gospel to build faith. Now, maybe that's new for you. I know it's been new for me. But I think it's clear. And since the gospel is so important, another way that we can grow in God's purposeful power to use the gospel is to ask each other which truth from the Apostles' Creed we're meditating on. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a summary, an excellent summary, a concise summary, and it's a way that we can uh, memorize scripture truths. So when I say, you know, when we confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that means that we're trusting in God for who he is and how he's not only created the whole universe and everything in it, but he is still upholding it and sustaining it even now. All things happen because of his fatherly hand and caring for his children and his creation is at the top of his list. For instance, if you have a friend struggling with anxiety or worry, it may be helpful to meditate on how God is creator and sustainer. That God does not let any experience of ours, anxiety or worry, go to waste. But even and often especially uses the painful seasons of life to conform us to him. Maybe you know someone who's suffering an injustice of some kind. Remind them the part of the Apostles' Creed that states, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is, from heaven he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ will make all things right at the end of this age. And although we may want to make it right in the eyes of humanity while we're here, it is God who's the judge. It's up to Christ to make those righteous judgments on our behalf. And I, I have to think, isn't that a burden that's lifted from us? We don't have to judge. I don't have to make a righteous judgment because Christ will do it for me at the end. You don't have to make a righteous judgment because Christ will take care of it for you. All will be made right at the end of this age by God's righteous judgment. Or maybe you know someone who's struggling with coveting, like me. Let me be real with you for a moment. I, my heart, is often captured by things that are shiny and things that are new and things that are beautiful. Shiny things just capture my attention. They take my eyes off of Christ. They distract me from what's important in life, namely God and his will. New things, new things. They have to be better than the old things, right? Or else they wouldn't be new. This is where my mind and heart is. We're, we're catechized in this world to think that newer is better. 
that somehow newer has to be better than old. And beautiful places to live or vacation. I mean, there, there are some places that I, I see and, and the grass is literally greener than mine, <laughs> okay? Like, how do you argue with that? <laughs> or there's places that seem more peaceful or just look so serene. The air must be crisp and, and clear and clean. Oh, and if you know someone who's like me and finding themselves discontent, you could remind them, and please remind me, that in the Apostles' Creed, it addresses this when it says that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, God's grace through Christ, paying our sin debt, is something we don't deserve. We all deserve hell. I deserve hell. And yet, and yet God freely, graciously gives it to us. Christ bore hell on the cross for you and for me. He took on the full wrath of God, including God turning his face away from him, being disowned from his only begotten son because of the stench of our sin. Christ took on everything on our behalf so that we can now be content in all circumstances. Remind that person and remind me that gratitude for what God has already accomplished through Christ because that's the starting point of true gratitude and to start to think about the other blessings that we also receive in this life. Perhaps your friend or loved one is in a lot of pain, physical or, or mental pain. There, there might be an opportunity and, and this is tender here, I, I understand that. But there might be an opportunity to remind them that Christ is with them. And that Christ also suffered, both body and soul, in a, in a physical way, under Pontius Pilate. Often, in these types of situations, sometimes it's just enough to be there with the person. And that communicates more than anything. And in those times, it's well to be silent. But perhaps an opportunity might present itself to share that Christ knows what this person is going through because he's also experienced extreme physical pain. In all these things, I hope that you can see that we need each other. We also state in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the communion of the saints. So because you've been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, God has granted you with gifts by which you are to serve his church. And one way you can do that, to use your gifts, is what we just discussed. There is, in a real sense, in which the growth of my faith is dependent upon God's work in you and you serving his church. The Christian faith is not an individual faith, as we sometimes think. It's a communal one. We believe in the communion of the saints. If you're not at church to hear Christ-centered, gospel-oriented, public proclamation, then how can, how can that be an encouragement to those that are? Week in and week out. Uh, it's an encouragement to the faith of the saints that, that are here to see others also here being under God's word. If you're withholding an opportunity from someone to serve, that's also a way. Now I know we don't like to ask for help, and I certainly don't like to ask for help, but... God has given you gifts to serve each other. And sometimes that means you, or sometimes me. 
We need to be served and allow this person to be the blessing that God has asked them to be. We have the communion of saints because as Romans 12, 5 states, so we, though many, are one in Christ, are one body in Christ, sorry, and individual members of one another. Now get that. Because we are united to Christ, who is our head, we are also individual members of one another. Communion of saints. So God, through Peter's words, is asking us to listen up and to wake up and to buckle up because our life is short and the gospel and its fruit-producing work in our lives is that important and worth continual reminder. So let's be reminded together. Be stirred up so that you can continually remember the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.